What can you do? What do you want to do? Where are you right now? What's realistic for you? Mm. And what kind of flexibility do you need? Do you need the flexibility to go cry when something hits you and you didn't expect it? Yeah. Do you need a door that you can close? Yeah. Do you need a little time when the kids aren't, like, do you need a little respite from taking care of the kids all the time? Yeah. Do you need flexible hours? Because one of the things that I found is I had to be really patient with myself and not expect myself to be able to do the things I'd been able to do right before. Welcome to Financially Ever After Widowhood, the podcast where we empower women to take control of their financial future after the loss of a spouse. I'm your host, Stacey Francis, President and CEO of Francis Financial, an award-winning and nationally recognized financial advisory firm. With the help of incredible guests, I'm ready to guide you through this challenging transition. Hi, I'm Stacey Francis. Today, our special guest is Joy Rosenthal. She's one of the most compassionate lawyers and divorce mediators that I've ever met. She's based here in New York City and keeps herself busy, not only through her practice, but she's also teaches at the CUNY School of Law. She also created an online learning course called Landing on Your Feet, a compassionate lawyer's guide for people who are going through divorce. While Joy's work is so important, that's actually not what we're here to talk about today. You see, Joyce is twice a widow. Her first husband, her love of her life, died in 2001, a mere six months after they walked down the aisle and got married. Eventually, Joy found love again and remarried only to have a second loss. In early May 2020, at the beginning of the COVID crisis, when hospitals were closed to visitors, her husband was admitted and never came out. These two life-altering, just devastating experiences helped Joy focus on her priorities. Joy shares that she learned how to draw on her inner strength. It taught her how to live with compassion. She brings to her life every day through her work and her personal life. Joy shares with us her story and how her strength brought her through and how she continues to show up for life every day, and her passion moves her forward. I'm so honored to have Joy here with us today to share her story, her encouragement, and her wonderful words of wisdom. Hi, Joy. I'm so excited to have you here. And for all of you listening, I've gotten to know Joy from the professional perspective, but have also been able to call Joy a friend, and we've been able to spend some really fun time together. And I just want to say thank you for for being here at Financially Ever After. Oh, it's my pleasure and my honor, Stacey. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Well, I'm sending you a hug through the screen. And, you know, I know you're here to share your story. And what my hope is today is that, you know, as you share your story, those women who maybe have lost hope after the loss of their loved one that do see that there is a path forward. Can you tell me a little bit about your story and what you've experienced? Sure. So the things that I think will be relevant for your audience are that I 
got married late the first time. We had a fantastic wedding that was really fun. And I was married to an incredible genius musician and composer named Makanda Ken McIntyre. Shortly after we got married, his sister got very sick and we spent the spring visiting her in Cambridge, going driving up from New York to Cambridge every weekend to see her through cancer. And she passed away on May 25th, 2001. And 19 days later, I had left the apartment. Everything was fine in the morning and Wakanda was exercising on the ski machine called the Nordic Track. And he died of a heart attack probably shortly after I left the apartment. So that was six months and three days after we'd gotten married. So everything was upside down, as you can imagine. Fast forward, I got remarried to another incredible, brilliant man named Daryl Allardyce, who was a poet and an educator, and kind of landed on my feet there and had a wonderful, loving relationship with him for a long time. And in 2020, at the very beginning of the COVID epidemic, he had sickle cell disease and about a month into COVID, when everything was at its worst in New York and we were not allowed to go into hospitals at all, I took him to the hospital. He walked into the hospital in Brooklyn with a sickle cell crisis, which was not particularly unusual. And he was there for 25 days and then he died on May 15th and I wasn't allowed to visit him. So every death is different. Every relationship is different. Every death is different. So it was a different experience, but it was also very disorienting and kind of turned my life upside down in a different way. So that's sort of the landscape of what we're talking about. And then any questions that you have in the, in the meantime, I'm happy to answer. Well, Joy, I just want to recognize what you've been through. You're one of the bravest people you know I've ever met to be here to share your story. And going through two losses, but at the same time, finding love again, and like all the pieces. After your first husband died, Makanda, how did you rebuild your life? And how did you put one foot in front of another? That was exactly how I kind of expressed it to myself, was put one foot in front of another. I felt like I had gotten thrown into the middle of the woods, and it was really dark, and there was kind of a path, but not exactly. And nobody else I knew had been through it. And I had to just kind of figure it out. It sounds, number one, very lonely. Did you have any support? Were there any support groups that you were part of? Because it almost sounds like you were having to walk down this path more so on your own because it there possibly weren't many people in your life that had had a loss like this. Right. So my peers, I was about 40. My peers who had been through it had lost parents, but that was different because I was living with Makanda and he was my partner and we had all these hopes and dreams about starting a family or being together for a long time. He was kind of the healthiest person around, you know, he was like a vegan before it was popular or kind of a vegan and he was eating healthy and telling everybody else to stop smoking and stuff like that. He exercised six days a week. So 
my peers had lost parents, but that felt different. And the people I knew who had lost their spouses were all like in my mother's generation. Yeah. But that felt different. So there were very few people that I knew who were my age who lost a spouse. I can't think of any. Uh But some of my friends really did come through in amazing ways. I mean, my parents were terrific and they lived Uh nearby. So that was helpful. My cousin, every year on the anniversary, my cousin would take me to the Bronx Botanical Garden and we would go for a walk and think about him and talk about him. That was so nice. I had another friend who called me every night or let me call her every night before I went to sleep. It was so sweet. And we did that for about six months, I think. People came through in amazing ways. And I found that the people who you expect to come through are not necessarily the ones who will. And the people who you don't will come through in unbelievable, surprising ways. And one of the things that I did, I was not part of a support group. I did go to therapy. This is a funny story. So I was working with kids in foster care at that point. And I would come home and I would tell McCondo, I was like, you want to hear what happened today? This crazy story. Happened. And I'm sure you have many stories. It happened in family court. And he would be like, you got to write this down. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he was like, no, you got to write. You got to write. And so I had written like a children's book about kids in foster care, like a draft of it. And the Sunday before he died, we were going up to Boston as usual to start to clean out his sister's apartment. And he was, I don't remember why he was telling me this, but he was like, you got to write, you got to write. And I'm like, okay, okay. And he's like, no, you got to write, you got to write. Okay, okay. And he's like, you got to write. And I was like, okay, like, leave me alone. Okay, I get the message. (laughs) Wednesday, that was Sunday. Wednesday was the day he died. And the following weekend, we get something in the mail for a writing school called the Frederick Douglass Creative Arts Center. They were having an open house for writing classes. And I was like, well, obviously I have to go to this. So I walked in. It was on 96 in West End. The people were very friendly. I was the only white person there. And I was like, ah, I don't belong here. What am I doing here? They don't want me here. And right as I was about to leave, because I was too shy, this guy came up to me and he said, what do you want to write? And I told him, and he said, talk to that guy over there. So I go over to that guy over there, whose name was Leslie Lee. And Leslie was a playwright. I said to him, I couldn't have said this while my husband was alive. He just passed away. But I think he was as good a musician as Miles Davis or John Coltrane. And he kind of looked at me like, who is this woman? And then a few minutes later, he was telling me where he had taught. And I was like, and he said he had taught at SUNY at Old Westbury. And I was like, you taught there? And he said, yes. And I said, were you in the performing arts department? And he said, yes. And I said, my husband was the head of that department for 25 years. And he looked at me and he said, who was it? And I told him and he didn't know. And so he was absolutely shocked. And so he kind of like reeled. And then he came back and he looked at me where in the eye? And he said, I know your husband. I know his music. He was as good as Miles or Train. And so once he said that, that was all I needed. <laughs> I was like, I don't care what you're teaching. I'm taking it. Yeah. And he taught a playwriting class that ended up being my best support. And I never would have guessed it. It was a wonderful group of people, very warm, very smart, very well-educated, 
I could talk to them. I could cry, whatever. And that's actually how I met Daryl. Daryl came into that class six months later. We just kept signing up with Leslie again and again and again because we loved him so much. And having that experience was just amazing. And that's where I met Daryl. And as it turned out, Daryl's sister had passed away a year before Makanda had. So he did know. He was my age, a little older, but not much. Yeah. And he did know what it was like to lose somebody who was that close. Yeah. As I said, people came through in amazing ways. I think that's so powerful because you're right. The people that we expect to be there sometimes just are nowhere to be found. And people who we just never would think would step up to the plate to be so supportive and part of our life in the way they are, are. But the other piece, Joy, that I really just want to recognize you for, I mean, that took a lot of courage sign up for that class. Even though, even though, you know, Makanda was like in the back of your mind saying, Joy, you need to like, you know, there's a reason that you got that in the mail. You have to go. But to get yourself out of bed, to get yourself out of the apartment, to be there takes a huge amount of courage. How did you do that? And I know that you almost left. Makanda and I were so close and there was so much love at the wedding and at the funeral. He was a jazz musician, right? So the music was amazing and the dancing was amazing at both. I think that I really felt included and accepted and loved. And he kind of gave people in his circle the message like joy's okay. I, that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, my background... I went to very integrated schools and stuff like that. So my background is a little different from, honestly, most white people's. But it wasn't just the racial thing about going. It was mostly just, as you said, getting out of the house and going. I mean, I did know from the very beginning that I needed to keep going and I needed to keep moving. One of the things, I was working at Legal Aid then, and when I was working in Bronx Family Court, I was in court 10 times a day. I was in court all day, every day. And it was a very demanding job and that's brutal. A job where you're around people all the time and there's no time to think about yourself and there's no time to be emotional. I had gotten a job working in the appeals unit at Legal Aid. And so at the time that Makanda died, I was actually at a job where it was I was sitting in front of a computer all day and it was very quiet. And if I had been in court, I think I would have had to leave or to take a break. But because I had a job where I was reading and writing, I was doing legal research and writing briefs, and they gave me a lot of space and they were very, very kind about it. That was pretty amazing. And then I got a job a few months later. So Makanda died right before 9-11. And right at the time of 9-11, I got a job with NYU where I was teaching and working in their law clinic. So that was kind of the perfect mix of being around people and yet having a door that I could close, which I had not had before. Yeah, of having that balance. Yeah, so that was helpful. Going through that experience, being newly married, I mean, that the last thing you would ever expect is become a widow six months after you've been married. How did you deal with the finances? Did you even have time to merge your finances? Like, what did that look like? In some ways, it was easier the first time. In some ways, it was harder. So the part that was easier was that I had a salary, so I knew that I could support myself. I had always supported myself before, so mm -hmm. that wasn't that different. The difference was two things. One was 
his sister had just died and we had to sort out her estate. And two was his kids. He had grown kids who were not thrilled about the fact that we were getting married. And this was kind of why. And I had to negotiate with them about how we were going to handle her estate and how we were going to handle his estate. And that took a lot of work on all of our parts. And we hadn't had time to get to know each other. So that was tricky. And the one thing that I wanted to make sure of was that I would be able to do something with his music. And they were great about that. I mean, we carved out some money that I could use specifically to, I wasn't sure what we were going to do with his music, but to do something. And we ended up spending almost two years going through his music and organizing it. And he left about 400 compositions, so sheet music, and then about 400 recordings, mostly on cassette tape and reel-to-reel tape. And we had those all transferred to digital format. We ended up sending that all down to the Library of Congress. And then I organized a few concerts of his music and worked with a group. There's a group in Boston actually called the Maconda Project that still plays his music, which is just amazing. And so when we do something for that, then I always get in touch with his sons and see him and stuff. But that was a little a little complicated in the first year. Yeah, yeah no, I can't even imagine. And and what I'm hearing, though, is that you, you did feel like you were in a decent place financially because you had this ongoing salary. And when you were married with Daryl, um, and I know you were married for a much longer period of time, was there a different feeling or concern about your finances after he passed away in 2020? Yeah. One thing going back to Maconda for a moment was that Maconda had made me the beneficiary of his pension. It was like an annuity. So it was a monthly amount for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And that's what enabled me to start my business. So knowing that I had that coming in meant gave me the yeah. security to start my business. And by that point, I was on Daryl's health insurance. Daryl was a teacher uh, with New York City DOE, so he had really good benefits. Right. So that was really helpful. And now I receive Daryl's pension, which is such a gift. <laughs> it's yeah. really a gift. But when Daryl died, I was running my own business and I couldn't work because I was flattened out. And also because of COVID, I'd moved home and I needed to move out of my office on Broadway, uh-huh. Manhattan. Luckily, I didn't have a lease or that would have been horrendous. And all this stuff was going on because of COVID, right? So I applied for the, the and- loans and stuff like that, right? Which was really helpful. And I also applied to postpone my mortgage payments. So I didn't pay my mortgage for the first year or something. So that was going on because of COVID. I don't know what I would have done because it was very difficult for me to work. And I spent the summer, he died in May. And then I spent that summer in the office scanning 14 years worth of files. I had let go of my paralegal, which was really heartbreaking. And I knew that if I was going to move home, I couldn't take all these files with me. So I needed that time to not be making money so I could do this. And I remember thinking at the time, I gave up the office because of COVID, but I gave up 
my incredible, wonderful paralegal because of Daryl. Like I just couldn't work that much. And I kind of sat down with a pen and paper and a friend helped me and figured out how many hours I needed to work to get paid a week, which wasn't much because I had reduced my expenses so much. Yeah. And it's a pretty big difference to lose someone and have a salaried job versus losing someone and working for yourself. And, you know, I'm right there with you, particularly when the business is you, right, Joy? I mean, your work is divorce mediation, helping individuals separating or divorcing. And if you're not working, there's not any payments coming in. Right. And I know also during these times of COVID, when it first hit, it's like the world just became silent in the area of matrimonial law because courts weren't open and there were no new cases to be had. And then, you know, eventually things kind of normalized. How are you now? How have you blended working with your life? How does that feel? And did you go back and get an office? Are you working from home? And those decisions, how does that feel now? So Daryl had made his office. We have a three-bedroom apartment, which is a huge luxury in New York, as you know. And with our room, and then there was a big guest room, which is also where Daryl had his desk. And then there was a little office, which is mm-hmm. where I was working out of. And about three or four months ago, I left his desk exactly as it was, so he could come back and start writing at any time. And then finally, I told him about three or four months ago, I was like, I want that big room. So what you see now is the big office. I moved the bed into the other little yep. guest room. So I do have a nice size office now. I don't see generally see clients here, but I could theoretically. Yeah. And the file cabinet that you see behind me with a few drawers in it, it's not even full. Like that's all my records because everything's on the computer. That's I amazing. Heavily on Dropbox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I keep a pretty regular work day. That part hasn't really changed. I mean, I'm mediating on Zoom now. The thing that has changed, you know, one of the things in grief, I found that I lost a lot of executive function, you know, like the ability to organize and to be able to think about things. And so there were things that I did to be able to work with that, like write everything down and make checklists and stuff like that. But the things that Andy had done, my paralegal, like adoptions, which are very exact and there's a million pieces of paper and you have to keep track of what we have and what we don't, what we still need and send this to court and that. Andy was great at that and I'm not great at that. I love doing adoptions, but I gave it up because- Adoptions like families adopting children, is that- Mostly second parent adoption. So when yep. two moms oh, got baby, it. the second mom has to yep. adopt. So looking at where you're at and right, what you can do and what's right for you. Right. And then the other thing that I did, I was teaching at CUNY Law School. I teach family law there every spring. And they gave us a lot of courses on how to teach online, which mm-hmm. was great. And then I took another online course about how to create online courses And so I created an online course for people who are going through divorce about family law for people who are actually going through it. So I've been doing a lot to market that. And that's all stuff that you can do from home. You can do in your own time. That's a kind of a work in progress. But 
as you said, I sort of like took, well, what can I do? Yeah. And what do I want to do? What I think is beautiful, Joy, is that you've molded your life to be where it is right now to support you. What would you give as your advice to women who, you know, maybe they're six months after, a year after, still trying to figure it all out and keep moving forward? Do you have any pieces of advice that you would give or something that would, was really helpful for you? I think you just said it. What can you do? What do you want to do? Where are you right now? What's realistic for you? Mm. And what kind of flexibility do you need? Do you need the flexibility to go cry when something hits you and you didn't expect it? Yeah. Do you need a door that you can close? Do you need a little time when the kids aren't, like, do you need a little respite from taking care of the kids all the time? Yeah. Do you need flexible hours? Because one of the things that I found is I had to be really patient with myself and not expect myself to be able to do the things I'd been able to do right before. Yeah. And I have to say, Joy, I so appreciate you sharing that because- I feel like we're not super patient people. Now I say we, like, you're exemplified that you are, but like we in general, we just expect that we're going to be able to pick up and get our shit together and keep on going. And that's just not giving ourselves the space and the grace to realize that that's not, that's not true. And it's okay that it's not true. Yeah. And I feel like you don't have much of a choice. Life will tell you. I mean, there were weird things that happened after Daryl's died. I I lost my house and my car keys. That never happens. I was locked out of the apartment one day when I had an important presentation that I was posting on Zoom. One day, all of a sudden, my whole email went kablooey. Like, it was just like, these were weird things that were going on. And I just had to kind of roll with it. Like, you don't have a choice. It's like what I said in the beginning about you're plunked down into this forest and you have to figure out your way out without a map. That was all really something. And the other thing that it was that the union messed up my health insurance. They told me I had health insurance, so I didn't try to change it. And then it turned out that I hadn't had it. By the time I found out, I hadn't had it for three months. I had to go back and apply retroactively. It was a mess. It took months and months to get that straightened out. So those are the kinds of things And I guess the other advice I would give is to get somebody, if there's somebody that can help you, whether it's a friend or a relative or somebody who can help walk you through all the forms you have to do, all the probate. I mean, that you usually would hire a lawyer, but like if you have to sell apartments or change the name on this form or that, there's so much administrative. So much paperwork. Yeah. At the time when you can't really make those decisions. Yeah. Joy, I can't thank you enough. I would love for you to share about your practice. And if people are interested in learning more about your practice or contacting you for divorce mediation, what is the best way? Maybe share your website and we'll also put that in show notes too. Okay, great. So go to joyrosenthal.com. So I do divorce mediation and collaborative law. I do not do contested divorces or litigated divorces. There's two sections on it. There's work with joy, which has the divorce mediation part. And there's learn with joy, which has the part about the course. So for anybody who's not a widow, but is getting divorced, wants that information, it's there. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who's going through this, who is a widow. So you can find me at joyrosenthal.com. 
and then just fill out. There's a little inquiry thing. Joy, I can't thank you enough for being here, for sharing your story, for being so courageous and also just being so real. I can't thank you enough because I know that the thousands of women that are listening, you've just really, really helped them. So thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's such a joy to talk to you. Thank you, Joy. I so appreciate Joy sharing her unbelievable journey, difficult journey, and her authenticity and courage of telling us how her whole world was really truly turned upside down, not once, but twice. She shared with us how she rebuilt her life, how she rebuilt her career. And my hope for you is that you can take away some of these nuggets of wisdom to help you in your journey. If I can help you in your journey on the financial side, answering any questions, please do reach out. My email is stacy, S-T-A-C-Y at francisfinancial.com, or you can go to our website and there's hundreds of different topics and blogs and articles that can help answer your questions as well. And that's at www.francisfinancial.com. Thank you for listening in and we'll be seeing you in two short weeks. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After Widowhood. If there's a question you'd love for us to answer on the podcast, we can do that for you. All you have to do is give us a call and the number is 347-682-5580. Let me say that again, 347-682-5580. Whether you're working with an advisor or you're maybe doing it on your own, we invite you to reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Our hope is to be a resource for you to help you also find a great financial advisor, whether that be with our firm or one of our trusted colleagues. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and join us next time on Financially Ever After Widowhood.